Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has slow walked through Dante's first third of comedy, Inferno, and now is slow walking through the second third, Purgatorio. We have come to the end of the first canto of Purgatorio, where it lines 112 through 136. This is my English translation of this passage. You can find it, as I always say, on my website, markscarbro.com. You can print it off, read it there, drop a comment, do as you like. Otherwise, I'm going to just read it here. Remember, no funny voices, as in Inferno. And let me just set up the passage briefly. We had an old man appear on, well, a ledge or on some place. We weren't quite clear where. We were looking up at the stars. The old man seemed rather belligerent or bellicose or at least warning in some way. Then Virgil responded by essentially telling the story of how he and this living soul got here. And then this old man, who turned out to be Cato of Utica, came back with a reply about how to proceed, a gentler reply. Now we're at the end of that canto, and Virgil is going to carry on with the pilgrim. Lines 112 through 130 of Canto One of Purgatorio. Virgil began, Son, follow my footsteps. Let's turn back now. As you can see, the little plain slopes down from here to its lowest point. True dawn was putting to rout the first morning light, which had already taken flight. In this way, I could just recognize way in the distance the vibrations of the ocean. We went along the lonely escarpment like travelers who've lost their road and wander around in vain until they can find it again. When we got to the spot where the morning dew still duped it out with the sun and hadn't yet evaporated, that is, a spot cooled by a slight breeze, my master spread out both his hands and gently ran them through the soft grasses. Then I understood his craft. I offered my tear-stained cheeks to him. He uncovered all the natural color in my face that hell had so shrouded. Now we went on to a place that was truly deserted. No man has ever sailed to that spot and then sailed back to where he'd come from. So Virgil indeed outfitted me as it pleased another. Oh, marvel of marvels, the humble rush that he had selected grew back instantly from the very place where he had pulled it up. A nice little conclusion to this opening canto, a conclusion that ends with uh, possibly a reference to the resurrection or of regeneration. Let's talk through this passage. It brings us to a lot of different places. It's going to bring us back to Cato. It's going to bring us to Virgil's Aeneid more than once, actually. It's going to bring us to characters in Inferno, and it's going to bring us further into Purgatorio. So let's get started. Cato, if you remember, has just disappeared, and Virgil now says, follow my footsteps. Let's talk about just that for a minute, since we left it alone in the last episode of this podcast. Cato's appearance and disappearance. He comes and goes. This is another way that Cato is like 
the resurrected Jesus. If you don't know, in the stories in the New Testament after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus tends to appear and disappear in front of disciples, other people, Mary Magdalene, maybe a disciple, depending on how you look at it. He appears and disappears at will, coming in and out of rooms, apparently through walls. It's all very kind of mystical and weird in this resurrected body that he's in. But again, appearance and disappearance. This is what Cato does. He appears in front of us and then for sure he disappears. I I told you before that I think he kind of emerges from the text. I mean, surely he appears, but we don't have a definite notion of his exact moment, but we do have an exact moment of his disappearance. Cato is just a little bit like the resurrected Jesus, and let me just push that a little bit. This is going to seem a little blasphemous to you, but let me tell you that this comment is not blasphemous in the Middle Ages. Another way that Cato is like Jesus is that they were both suicides. Now, again, saying that in the modern world seems a little blasphemous if you're a Christian. But in the Middle Ages, Jesus was much more freely associated with being a suicide. What do I mean by that? Well, if he is, in fact, part of the Godhead, the Trinity, if he is God-made flesh— then he knows that he's going to be put to death on the cross. So his mission to earth is, to use a very modern term, a suicide mission. And there are ways in which Jesus as a suicide gets played with in medieval poetry, in especially in mystical medieval thought, but also in medieval theology. And this is another way that he is like Cato. But <laughs> then we would have to say, if we're going to push it, I'd say that we have found resonances of Dante's besetting sin being suicide, then there might be a way that Dante is subtly and very quietly linking himself to Jesus. That may seem like a lot of hubris to you, but after all, this is a guy who thinks he walked across the universe. So <laughs> how much how much hubris do you want? Let's look at what Virgil says. He starts off, son, follow my footsteps. And this is a familiar pattern. We've watched this before. Virgil sets off and Dante follows behind. We're being cued that there are ways that we are in the same, what do I say, emotional landscape that Inferno was in. Virgil then says, let's turn back now. As you can see, the little plane slopes down from here to the lowest point. I want to stop right there. There are only two moments in comedy in which Dante actually goes downhill, and they occur in the first canto of Inferno and the first canto of Purgatorio. Before I explain that, let me just say that there are several moments when the pilgrim goes laterally, and I've been thinking about one recently. Before Garion, if you remember, the pilgrim Dante goes along the cliff's edge to see the usurers, so he's not moving up or down. Down. He's moving laterally. And then after they ride down on Garion to the first pit, if you remember, he's walking along and the sinners are being whipped toward him. And he kind of starts backing up so that he can talk to one. That's another lateral movement. And I'm so intrigued 
by Garion's appearance being bracketed by lateral movements in comedy. I've thought about this endlessly. I don't have an answer to it. I'm just dropping it here for you. It's a problem because I don't actually have an answer to why this is, but there you go. I've thought about it. Okay, back to the two down moments. This is one in which Cato has directed them to head lower down to the shore. Okay, fair enough. Let's go back to the first canto of Inferno. You might think that it's that moment when Dante falls down that hill. Remember, he starts to climb the hill out of the dark wood. The beasts block him. He falls back down into the dark wood again, and Virgil appears. But it's not. Remember, flip the globe on its head. We did this at the end of Inferno. You got to flip the whole thing upside down. Now, if you flipped it upside down so that you understand that the journey through Inferno is actually a journey up, even when it looks like a journey down, that means that that moment on the hill in which he's climbing up that hill toward the sunrise is actually a down moment. And when he falls back down the hill, if you flip the globe upside down, he's actually falling up in the overall scheme of the journey. And you know this makes emotional sense because trying to climb that hill on his own is not going to get him anywhere. There are the blocking figures and they block him and he comes back down the hill, which is actually going up. He's coming back down the hill and that's when Virgil appears as if the whole thing is willed or directed from somewhere else or fated. That's the point. Remember when we were at that mountain and Dante fell back down, I said to you, there may be a way in which those beasts are fortuitous or divinely placed there to drive the pilgrim back to the place where he could meet Virgil. I think now that we're out to Purgatorio, it's safe to say that is indeed the answer. So there's these two down moments. <laughs> I know, climbing the hill. How can that be down? There's these two down moments, climbing the hill and now descending because Cato asked them to. They're different in two ways. One, the one in Inferno is all about the pilgrim's own, uh, what do I want to say, his own gravitas, his own chutzpah, his own attempt to climb something on his own, and he is thwarted from that. Here, when they go down, there are two of them. Both the pilgrim and Virgil go down. That must be a very important difference between the two. The second big difference is when he starts to climb that hill, no one has told him to. And so that ascent, which is, in fact, a descent, that that ascent is, in fact, of his own volition. In this case, Cato has sent them down. So there's something about being in community and going down and perhaps something about humility, that this going down is directed by another. And so this going down is not set up to fail. Rather, this going down is set up to precede the giant ascent coming up to us. And that happens with two, not one. I feel like a Sondheim song suddenly. With two, not one. It takes two. Moving on to the passage, it says, True dawn was putting to rout the first morning light, which had already taken flight. So we are now firmly into Easter morning. In this way, I could just recognize way in the distance the vibrations of the 
ocean. This is a long commented on passage. It's actually a reference to Virgil's own Aeneid. In book seven, right at the opening, lines six to nine, there's right after Aeneas comes up out of the underworld, there's a moment in which he sets off on kind of the odyssey part of the Aeneid, the sail across the islands. And this is the beginning of it. And this this opening passage recognizes the ocean as a kind of trembling or vibrating surface. So here we're given this quote that essentially comes from the Aeneid. This is another way that Dante is cueing us that Virgil is still the guy. Just like follow my footsteps here, a reference to the Aeneid helps us establish that Virgil is indeed the guy. This may, again, be old hat for us. You may have read comedy before, or it may not be quite as resonant in your brain that Virgil would be the guide to purgatory, but it's not for Dante. It, again, it may be old hat, as we would say in English, old hat for us, but it must have been shocking for most of Dante's audience. And thus, in this first canto of Purgatorio, the constant cueing from Cato and here from quoting the Aeneid that Virgil is indeed still the guide. The passage goes on. We went along the lonely escarpment like travelers who've lost their road and wander around in vain until they can find it again. This is another callback, right, to Inferno 1 about being lost in the dark wood. Although here, again, to emphasize that point, the pilgrim is lost with Virgil. In fact, they're both lost or, and this is what I love, or are they? Cato has told them exactly what to do. Go get a rush, clean him up. Then he can meet the first minister. Then he can start through purgatory. Cato has laid it all out for them. Are they actually, well, lost? This is what is so astounding about Purgatorio. There are moments and remnants of doubt even in the afterlife that begins the part of it that is about the redeemed. Dante the poet has made a very complex scene. Just step back. Doubting in purgatory, wandering around in purgatory, not being sure in purgatory. In Inferno, wandering around, okay, that's part of kind of an infernal logic. But here, being lost, and they're not really lost. Cato told them exactly what to do. Here, it seems kind of an existential statement. Purgatory is the place where you can still be saved, to use a Christian theological word. You can still be saved, but lost. We want to explore more of that when we start talking through what purgatory is. This little tercet. These three lines are just so curious to me as Virgil and Dante wander around in a lost emotional landscape, even though they know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. When we got to the spot where the morning dew still duked it out with the sun and hadn't yet evaporated, that is a spot cooled by a slight breeze. And I should tell you that 
that may sound complicated to you. It is actually complicated in the Petrochio text, the common text most of us use to translate comedy. It's a little garbled there. And this may be a tercet that is a tad garbled. There may be some words off in here that have been compiled from a manuscript tradition. And so I tried to make my tercet a little garbled. I mean, what he's saying is that they're coming down to a place where the sun hadn't quite, what do I want to say, it hadn't quite penetrated into a little spot. So there was a cool breeze and not all the dew had blown off and evaporated off in the morning. But it's not stated elegantly. But the next terse it is. My master spread out both his hands and gently ran them through the soft grasses. Then I understood his craft. I want to stop on that word, craft, arte. This is a big word for Dante, and we've talked about this endlessly in Inferno. It doesn't necessarily mean art the way we think about art, Michelangelo and Matisse. And I don't know who else. But it doesn't mean art in the way that we would think about the word art. And yet it's coming to mean that in Western culture. More here, it has to do with directed or inspired craft as if there's a model, something that you have to follow. This is perhaps a larger comment on Virgil. Maybe Virgil's art is here being redeemed because for once the poem is not following Virgil's Aeneid. Instead, Virgil is following the orders of one of the redeemed, Cato, if you take Cato as redeemed as I do. So Virgil is walking, as it were, in someone else's footsteps in the way that Dante through the afterlife has been walking in Virgil's footsteps. It may be a little node of the meta-reality that is going to set in <laughs> and beset us throughout Purgatorio. I offered my tear-stained cheeks to him. He uncovered all the natural color of my face that hell had so shrouded. Let's just pause and say natural color. So it is as if Dante has been returned not to a state of innocence, but to a, to use the fancy word, post-lapsarian state. That is the state of humanity after the fall. Has it been returned to a state of innocence, which would be a pre-lapsarian state. Instead, he's been turned back into a human after the fall of man in Christian theology. I should also say that this passage is often seen as a baptism moment for Dante. I don't buy it because the real baptism is coming. It's ahead of us. And it's going to be so dramatic and so forthright that to call this a baptism moment, no. It robs then the big one coming of some of its force. What this does, though, and what is so interesting is it leaves Pierre de la Vigna in the poem again. Remember what happens with the suicides? Dante breaks a branch and the blood spurts forth and then the suicides can talk in their tree forms. Here, Virgil uproots a plant. So uprooting is like breaking a twig. There's again a weird resonance going on between the passages. But this time, Dante doesn't blanch as he does with Pierre de la Vigne, this time he gets cleaned up in some way. Most critics point to this moment as a moment out of Virgil's Aeneid in book 
six, right before Aeneas sets off with the Sybil to the underworld. He has to pull up a golden bough, where, of course, we get the term the golden bough. He has to pull up a golden bough that regenerates, and this is his entree into the underworld. Well, this isn't really Dante's entree into the afterlife. He's been there all along. In fact, we could argue he's coming out of the underworld and into the surface world of the earth. But it does have a golden bow reference under it. For me, what it really, I've said to you, has is a Piega de Vanya reference. Broken twig limbs, uprooted rushes. It all seems to be sitting back there. But there's another character from Inferno that is right here. The passage goes on. Now we went on to a place that was truly deserted. No man has ever sailed to that spot and then sailed back to where he'd come from. Hello, Ulysses. Hello there. There you are from back in Inferno 26. True. Nobody has ever sailed to this spot and then sailed back. But someone has sailed to this spot. And in case you missed the reference to Ulysses, the rhymes used here are exactly the same in two instances changed in the last word as the ones used for the end of Ulysses' journey in Inferno 26 lines 137, 139, and 141. The difference is that the last rhyme here is renewal. That is really important. The poet is cueing us in every way possible to say someone tried to get here under his own steam, Ulysses, but now the pilgrim is here outdoing that old grand talker, Ulysses. That is also a giant hubris so loud that the poet is trusting you to notice that the rhymes back in Inferno 26 are the same as the rhymes here. Wow, that's putting a lot of weight on how much am I going to study this poem. The poet clearly thinks I'm going to pay very close attention to this poem. Now finishing off the passage. So Virgil indeed outfitted me as it pleased another, and oh, marvel of marvels, the humble reed that he had selected grew back instantly from the very place where he had pulled it up. Of course, this is a regeneration, resurrection motif, but here's what I really want you to focus on. In the afterlife, nothing is lost. This is crucial to understanding Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. Where the pilgrim is, is a spot where nothing is ever lost. Or how about this? It is all preserved. I mean, listen, this is even the truth in Inferno, because what can the damned do? They endlessly tell their stories. We picture some of the damned, let's say Guido de Montefeltro. We picture him telling that story to Anyone who passes by, they are caught. Paolo and Francesca caught rehearsing. Mm, Chaco, no, apparently not. Chaco falls back down and doesn't rehearse. Ferranata, I don't know. He may not come back out of that tomb. But the ones who do, 
The ones who can rehearse are caught in their stories, and their stories are not forgotten. Their damnation is not forgotten. We have come to a place where nothing is lost, and so it is what I want to say, completely different from our world, which is imbued, infused, which is painted with loss. Dante the Pilgrim is the one variable in a constant afterlife. If we take the whole universe, essentially, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, it's all set, yet the pilgrim is the variable. Think about that for just a second. Being the only variable in a constant universe. And here, at the end of Canto One of Purgatorio, we are cued big time, of course, to the resurrection and to the regeneration, but also to the fact that everything is permanent. That will play big time in Purgatorio because Purgatorio will become a grand contradiction of everything is permanent. Let's read this passage one more time. Canto 1 of Purgatorio, lines 112 through 136. Virgil began, Son, follow my footsteps. Let's turn back now. As you can see, the little plain slopes down from here to its lowest point. True Dawn was putting to rout the first morning light, which had already taken flight. In this way, I could just recognize way in the distance the vibrations of the ocean. We went along the lonely escarpment like travelers who've lost their road and wander around in vain until they can find it again. When we got to a spot where the morning dew still duked it out with the sun and hadn't yet evaporated, that is, a spot cooled by a slight breeze, my master spread out both his hands and gently ran them through the soft grasses. Then I understood his craft. I offered my tear-stained cheeks to him. He uncovered all the natural color in my face that hell had so shrouded. Now he went on to a place that was truly deserted. No man has ever sailed to that spot and then sailed back to where he'd come from. So Virgil indeed outfitted me as it pleased another. And oh, marvel of marvels, the humble reed that he had selected grew back instantly from the very place where he had pulled it up. I hope that you have seen the complexities in the first canto of Purgatorio already. We've got lots more to go, but you know what? We are up to this task. (laughs) Why not? What else we got to do except be up for this? Dante has set it for us, so we're on the way. We're on the way into an incredibly complicated landscape. Doubting <laughs> in purgatory. Oh, I hope that you will subscribe to this podcast. I hope you'll rate it. If you would, drop down and write a comment, even just a nice podcast. That would be a fantastic way to support this work. I very much appreciate it. And otherwise, I'm Mark Scarborough, and I will see you back for yet another episode of Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.